I'm going to have you go to the Gospel of John. I know we've been in Mark, but I'd like you to go to John chapter 15. I like to wrap up VBS week and let you know what we've been teaching the youth all week. Because honestly, what we've been teaching them is what we all need. It's not like there's a separate message for youth than there is for adults. The gospel that saves, saves at any age. The gospel that sanctifies continues to sanctify all your days on this earth. And it's the same gospel that will bring us all the way to glory. We've been in in Mark's gospel and we left off at the Last Supper. And he pointed out that Judas was going to betray him. And then Mark goes from there right into the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you know your, your Bible, you know there's some amazing conversations and teachings Jesus has um, bet- during that Last Supper time before they go to the Garden. And they're recorded in John's Gospel. It's kind of hard as an expositional preacher knowing, oh, this good stuff's over in one of the other Gospels. I think we have permission to jump over to John, don't we? And um, what I'd like to do is try to connect what we learned here at VBS this week with John chapter 15. I realized as I was studying John 15 that everything we learned this week at VBS is just all contained there in that one chapter. And honestly, it's contained all throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's hard for the pastor to get up here and not just start cross-referencing the entire Bible. It's all connected. It all fits. Andy used to tell me that his first few times preaching, he tried to pretty much preach Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. And once you become convinced that they'll let you come back next week, you can break it up right into smaller chunks. But the Word of God is so exciting... Um, I just got back also, after a week of VBS, a conference down in Bakersfield featuring Alexander Strzok, who wrote the book on biblical eldership. And um, when he wrote that book, he realized eldership will only work in a context of love. He said, men are so selfish and egotistical, and if you're going to have a board of men running a church, they're going to have to learn to love one another like Christ loved the church or it's just not going to happen. And so true. And that, that just uh, launched him into really a career of writing about the love of God. Wow. Can you imagine just focusing all the time on the love of God and what the Bible has to say on the love of God? He says there's over a thousand references to the love of God in the Bible. And those are just the places where the word love is used. And really, the, the whole Bible is a message of God's love. We know from 1 John that God embodies love. God is love. So I want to I want to connect really my whole week with you and just kind of share it with you, which is why I went long this morning. Sorry about that. You know they they knocked that clock like 5 minutes fast and I know it's fast now. <laughs> so it's like when you set your alarm clock five minutes fast, but after about the third day, you realize, I, I really have five more minutes. So then you've got to set it ten minutes, you know, fast. Or just get out of bed when the clock goes off, you know, that's the way to do it. So here's what we uh, taught the kids this week. The whole theme is that there's one true God, and on Monday, I'll just take you through each of the five days, we, we introduce the children to the one true God, that there is one and only God. One and only God. And yet, there's all kinds of people and worldviews and religious systems claiming to be God. And they can't all be God, can they? By very definition, uh, there's just one God. God is, He's it. He's the end of the line. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one authority. He's sovereign, he's king, the top dog, the head cheese, all, all, the, all the cliches, he's all that but so much more. And the kids have no problem with that. They know, oh sure, 
they really haven't really been introduced to other gods and uh, other worldviews. So they don't have a problem accepting that. You get to the teaching time and you think you're done after 30 seconds. They got the memory verse, I am the Lord and there is no other, there is no God besides me. And they memorize so fast and they're like, okay, we're done. And that's the thing with kids is that they have that childlike faith which is amazing and yet they don't know what they don't know. The reason that there are these false gods is because there must be something in the heart of man that would listen to them and chase after them. And they are not completely aware of their own sin nature. And so in, in John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true Vine. Apparently, there are false vines that you can attach yourself to, and those vines will bear fruit, and they're not good fruit. Jesus is the true vine, He's the true God. There will be no other gods besides Him. And yet, as John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. We'll just keep cranking out false gods. And we started to talk to the kids, Monday, the older kids, about uh, idols of the Old Testament. And we went to Isaiah, and where Isaiah talks about a man who takes a tree and he, well, he plants a seed, and you know God does all the work to make the tree grow. We just wait, and there's the tree. And then he chops the tree down and cuts it in half. And with half the wood, he bakes bread and warms himself by the fire. And with the other half, he carves it into an idol. And he gets his bread out of the oven and probably sits on his wooden stool made out of the wood. Warms himself by the fire and looks at his idol that he made with his own hands. And he goes, ah, life is good. You're my God. Save me. And it's absurd, it's ridiculous, it's, it's even stupid, the NIV uses the term. I remember my, my first year here, I'm teaching in the Grove about the stupidity of worshiping idols. And uh, I got a call from a parent who said, I said a bad word <laughs> in the Grove. And I was like, oh dear, what came out of my mouth? You know, I mean, I have a past where stuff came out of my mouth pre-Jesus. And that stuff doesn't come out anymore. But you never know, right? It's like, what did I say? And they said, you said the S word. I'm like, oh, no. What did I say? Well, I haven't said that word in a long, long time. I knew at the church they're going to fire me. How am I going to explain this one? Well, it turned out the word was stupid. And uh, that word was not allowed in those kids' homes. And yet, it's a biblical word. It is stupid to worship something that you made with your own hands. It can't talk to you. It can't do anything. It can't save you. It can't help you with your problems. Unless you're cold. Right? Then you can burn it in the fire. But then it's kind of done. It's like a disposable God. <laughs> I know, it's absurd, huh? It's ridiculous. And they're like, why are you even teaching us this? Right? This is absurd. And you talk to them about the false gods in the Old Testament, you know. And we talked about uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how they had the big showdown. And uh, they, lo they love that story, but there's a disconnect with the world they're living in. Well, we're not going to chase after Baal. We're not going to build an Ashtoreth pole and put it in the living room. Um, no, because it would take the place of that TV that sits in the corner <laughs> and talks to you all day long and tells you to buy things so you'll be happy. Uh, so we do have these false gods, right? They just don't look like the ones in the Old Testament. On Tuesday, then... 
We've had to tell the kids that this one true God is really three. You know, and you're like, oh dear, how are we going to explain this? Well, it's not that there's three gods. It's one God, three persons. One God, three... We just drill it into their head. One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their memory verse was the Great Commission, which was also the day we introduced Austin and Heather. They came and spoke. And uh, they were using the Great Commission verse just to show the three persons in one there. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And I'm reading in in, uh, John chapter 15. And you'll never find the word Trinity in your Bible. It's just not in there. It's, it's a word made up of tri, three, unity, one, tri-unity. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that there's three persons in the Godhead. So at the end of John chapter 15, we have Jesus saying, He who hates me hates my Father also. What a bold statement. Because we know he's talking about God the Father. If I had gotten into the pulpit this morning and said, you know, if you hate me, you hate God. <laughs> I think they'd run me out of this place. At least I'd... I'd because you understand, I mean, I'd be equating myself with God. If the vote didn't go well, I'd say, well, a vote against me was a vote against God. Wow. The arrogance and the presumptuousness of such a statement. But Jesus can pull it off. He said, I and the Father are one. They said, show us the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then when you get get to the end of this, this section here, he says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father he will testify about me, the Son. Catching all that, it's, it's a little confusing. And the Trinity is confusing. And that's, that was a great song they were singing at VBS, the three in one. You know, I'm scratching my head. doesn't make sense. The math doesn't add up. And yet, we let the kids know that, look, if, if God is the one and only true God, and he created the universe out of nothing. And that he's always been. And he's all wise and all powerful, all knowing that you would expect there's some things about him that are different from us and things that are impossible for us to really understand on a human level. God should be like that. He's revealed himself in such a way to us that we can know him. We can know him in a real way, and yet we cannot fully grasp him. He's too big. He often condescends to our level and describes himself in ways that we can relate to in human terms so that we can have a relationship with him, so we can think thoughts about him. One of the things, Alexander, uh, it's actually Strau, not Strauch which is, uh, I should know that because one of our sixth grade Sunday school teachers is Brenda Strau, even though I always want to call her Brenda Strauch. But uh, it's Alexander Strau. And I'm German. I should know these things, right? And he said, isn't it wonderful that God has given us a mind that can even think these wonderful, impossible thoughts? Another proof of the existence of God. The fact that man can ponder such a being um, tells us he must exist. And yet, we can't get to the end of him. And so he started telling the kids, look, some people reject the one true God because they can't fully understand him. And so they settle for a God that they can understand, a God of their own making. And I asked them, these are the 10, 11, 12-year-olds, who do you think they'll fashion their God into the image of. And a bunch of hands went up right away and they said, themselves. 
Wow, you get that at at an early age. And yet, they get it about other people. It's so hard to get it about ourselves. Isn't that true? Isn't that so true? We know idolatry is bad and false gods bad and, and we protect our children from, from false gods and we bring them to the church with the correct doctrine and we open the word so they hear correct doctrine and we forget sometimes that there's something inside them that will want to create those false gods. More on that later. So they're like, okay, there's one true God, it's three persons, one God. What else can you tell me about this God? Okay, Wednesday. The attributes of the one true God. What is he like? And Austin did this great lesson on God revealing himself. If you want to know what God's like, God needs to tell you what what he's like. And um, when Moses sees the burning bush, and God speaks to him through the burning bush in Exodus. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And what does Moses say? Well, who, who should I tell them sent me? Which God are you? And he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am who I am. And I'm not going to expound on it because Austin did his Ph.D. dissertation on this. And so... But I, I learned something new as he was teaching the kids. He was saying, basically, that's not so much God's official name. Did I get that right, Austin? It's more, I'm so otherly, and watch what I will do next. You know. Explain to me, who are you? Just, just watch. You know. I'll give you a little taste. God can't thoroughly explain to us who he is in his entirety, not because he's deficient, but because we're deficient. And so he brings those ten plagues to Egypt, and Moses saw the parting of the Red Sea, and and the wiping out of Pharaoh's army, and all kinds of amazing miracles. But that has been the covenant name of God. And uh, the speaker yesterday at the conference said that name of God had been revealed long before Moses. I didn't know that either. Are you nodding your head? He said in Genesis 4, Enoch, which he said was Enosh, not Enoch. Ah, there was an interesting... Maybe that's the way Germans pronounce it. I I don't know. And on he went through the Old Testament and said this is the the covenant name of God. And here we have in John 15, Jesus using this I am statement all throughout the book of John. And when he would use this I am statement, the Pharisees would want to stone him for blasphemy. So they understood exactly what he was saying about himself. And if we look in John 15, 24, Jesus said, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did. Just like God the Father, the great I Am, Jesus was able to do works that nobody else could do. So we told the kids, look, this is how you know the difference between the true God and the false gods. They can't do anything. They're small, they're puny, they're weak, they're powerless. The real God is is all-powerful and all-knowing. We gave them a list of attributes to ponder. And then Austin let us know that uh, there was a time when Moses wanted God to reveal himself to him. And remember, God put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he said, I will reveal some of my glory to you, but you can't see my face. You know, when God wants to teach me something, it seems it comes at me from multiple sources all week long. Would you believe that the Friday night speaker at the conference 
spent two hours on this verse. I'm just getting bombarded with, with this teaching. And God says, I am slow to anger. Right? Abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Which that word for love in the Hebrew, really hard to get it, to capture it in English. I think it's hesed. Thank you, Austin. I'm just going to like quiz you all, all day long here. This kind of love where God says, I'm going to love you because I choose to love you. And nothing can stop me from loving you. Not because you're wonderful or you're mighty or you're great or you do amazing works. In fact, He loves us in spite of the fact that we're not any of those things. It's this amazing love He has for us that He just chooses to place on us. That's why Paul can cry out that he's convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Once God decides He's going to love you, there isn't much you can do about it. You ever told your kids that? When they're angry at you? Go ahead, be angry. I'm just going to love you. Nothing you can do. Just going to keep loving you. And we don't love our children perfectly like God loves us, but what a, what a, a picture, just a taste of the kind of love God has for us. You still get the impression, though, when you're teaching children that their view of God, God is just still too small. They're, they walk away after the teaching time and, and they're like, yeah, I got it. Like, what do you mean you got it? I don't even got it. <laughs> and the problem with, with childhood is you don't know what you don't know yet. But the, a few good questions were asked. Some hands went up. In fact, my own daughter, Ella, asked, well, then how did people get saved before... Jesus died on the cross. And, uh, wow, that's a good question. Because on Thursday, we introduced the kids to the gospel. I don't know how many kids in that room had had never heard the gospel. So we always present the gospel all week long at VBS. It's our number one priority is to make sure they know and understand the gospel and have an opportunity to place their faith in Christ, that they know what that means and that a decision needs to be made. If you grew up in the Baptist tradition, you understand that. Because when I first came to the church here, I did not come from a Baptist decision. And after our first VBS, I got asked by like 10 people how many decisions for Christ were made. And I'm like, a whole bunch, I hope. Every time we say no to our flesh and no to sin and say yes to God, that's a decision for Christ. And they're like, well, yeah, but we mean how many salvation decisions were made. So I I know we had many uh, led to the Lord formally. And they were given uh, tracts and a Bible, and we will follow up with those. Praise God for that. And there were many there who probably made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ at prior VBSs or in Awana or at the supper table with Grandma or however God uses to draw people to Himself. But you have to hear it again and again, not to get saved again and again, but to be reminded. To be reminded. And the Gospel is more than John 3.16. It's certainly nothing nothing less than John 3.16, but the depth of the gospel, you can dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel and never get to the bottom. It's so simple, a three- or four-year-old can accept Christ. I know many people that that is their salvation testimony, and they lived one of those lives where it's like, yeah, the fruit just came right away. That wasn't me, you know. But those people to a T, I'll say... Uh, I'm a terrible person. I don't deserve this kind of love from God. This kind, you know, you don't have to live this horrendous outward sinful life to understand your need for a Savior. And I praise God for those testimonies. But I also praise Him for the 
wow, they really went astray. But the Lord brought them back. And we had all kinds of those people serving this week. The, uh, I got saved at VBS when I was four, all the way to, uh, well, some really interesting stories, let's just say. And yet, there's one thing that's the same about all those stories. I was lost, now I'm found. I was lost, now I'm found. So we gave them John 3.16 on Thursday. And I tell you, the kids know this verse so well now that some of them even roll their eyes when you say we're going to memorize John 3.16. Some, some get excited because they're like, oh, I know that verse. And like the 12-year-olds are like, really? And so you know there's still work to do on the heart there, right? Right? Oh, come on. Can't you throw something a little harder at us? I know this one. Good, but how well do you know it? How well do you know what it means? How well do you internalize it? Could you teach it to other people? Could you lead someone to the Lord? We're going to talk more about that at the end of the sermon. So, what, uh, you know, my daughter asked, how did people get saved before Jesus died on the cross? By faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as Righteousness. Theologians and commentators, I guess all the commentators are theologians, argue over John 15.3, what it exactly means, that you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. I take it to mean that the justification of the eleven apostles, not including Judas, already happened when they professed faith that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Doesn't that sound like regeneration? Didn't the Holy Spirit reveal to them, this is the one to put your faith in for your salvation? We could debate over this point, but certainly there's good reason to believe that at this point the apostles, the eleven, the true apostles, were justified they were already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, were they completely sanctified? No, what's Peter going to do in 24 hours? Deny Jesus three times. And then God's going to restore him later. And then in the book of Acts, he's going to... Say, I don't want to eat with Gentiles, I'll go eat with the Judaizers because I don't want them thinking that, you know, I'm not Jewish enough. And Paul has to correct him. Our youth don't completely understand the doctrines of justification versus sanctification. They think when they put their faith in Christ that suddenly they, they'll never do anything wrong again. Yeah. Um, and they slip back into a kind of works righteousness mindset. I mean, that's the mindset they're brought up with. We're all brought up with that, right? If you do good, you get rewarded. If you do bad, you get punished unless you grow up in one of those progressive liberal homes where you get rewarded either way because it's my fault that you're misbehaving. Yeah, it's your environment. I just didn't tell you the rules well enough. Sorry. Right. And we bring that works righteousness mindset with us kind of wherever we go. And even those who have been walking with the Lord a long time, we fall back into that mindset. And so sometimes in a group like with the young people like that, I know they know John 3.16. I explain it to them. They seem to have a grasp of grace. And then I go, so how many of you are living a, you know, a life you know, good enough for heaven? And like all the hands go up. Except for a couple like, they know I ask trick questions. So they're, <laughs> they're kind of waiting and I do bait them because when they answer question right, I throw them a smarty, a roll of smarties. And uh, so they all just throw their hand up because they want a smarty. I'm like, really? You're good enough to go to heaven? And 
they think about it a, a little bit more and and uh, I start giving them typical scenarios of where people miss the mark, where kids sin, and they admit, oh yeah, that sounds like me. So I said, so you're not saved then. And you you got to do this with with the kids and really get them to meditate on on their salvation. The more deeply they think about things, the gospel in biblical terms, the lower estimation they will have of themselves and the higher estimation they will have of God. And when that gap widens, grace abounds all the more. But when that gap narrows, who needs grace? Grace isn't so amazing anymore. So on Friday, we, we tell them this one true God, uh, when you put your faith in, in Him, actually takes up residence in you. The third person of the Trinity takes up residence in you and empowers you to love God. And the memory verse was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And, you know, we ask, well, who can do that here? And they all raise their hand again, you know. Really, you can love God with... And I'm like, oh, they're on to me now, right? And in John 15, 10, it says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Well, this was kind of my favorite day of the week and where I'm going to springboard into some other things here and kind of wrap it all up. Most of these kids are not going to chase after Buddha. Probably not. Maybe there's that Buddhist temple up on 202. So I hope not, and I pray that the kids won't. It is a tempting worldview, though, that all is uh, illusion. You know, and um, clear your mind and make your own truth. There is no real. Uh, right and wrong. That sounds familiar. You can make your own right and wrong. Where have we heard that? Where have we heard that in the Bible? Genesis 3, right? You eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will be like God. You'll have your eyes open and you will know right and wrong. All these false gods stem back to, to Genesis 3. And because we're fallen... We will make a God if there isn't one for us to chase after. This is the hardest thing, I think, for parents to grasp, for all of us to grasp. We understand the evil and the danger that's out there, and we're trying to protect our kids from it, rightfully so. The sink or swim method of child rearing, I don't think, is the way to go. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to start delving into uh, controversial topics because you already voted. (laughs) (laughs) When we talk about kids straying from the faith, it's always controversial because there are many parents and grandparents out here with a child that has strayed from the faith. And um, keep praying. Don't give up. God's timing is not our timing. Keep being salt and light to them. And for those who are still raising their children like I am, you want a formula or a system. You want some kind of guarantee. And with anything in life, there's, you know, your pendulums. And and one end of the pendulum is if we do everything right, it'll go well with our kids. Well, God doesn't give us that promise. The other end of the pendulum is, well, there isn't much we can do about it, so why bother? I don't really think anybody's saying that. But somewhere in there has to be where we're supposed to be ministering to our youth and our children. But what I'm about to tell you isn't just for our kids. Don't tune out if you don't have children. 
Don't tune out if you're done raising children. Don't tune out if you're single. The things that draw our kids away from the faith are the same things that draw all of us away from the faith. Even after you're saved, we're tempted to, to stray. Lord, I, I wander. Bind my heart to Thee. I'm prone to wander. A little illustration. I was driving down Bear Valley Road last week and they've got the sheep out there. Which is great because we have all these biblical references to sheep and you're a sheep and I'm a sheep. Right? And uh, my kids are, oh, look at all the sheep. And this sheep wanders right across the road. And I'm going like 50. You know, it's, it's downhill. And he doesn't even look up. He didn't look left, right, and left again or whatever they teach you to do in school. And the kids are like, he's not going to move, is he? And I'm like, no, I'm going to have to stop. And I, I came to a complete stop and he's just moseying along, no danger. You know what he wanted? Because all the other sheep were over here. There was, there was a, a green weed over there. That's all he wanted. I want that. And that's the way the Bible describes us. We get distracted by things and probably was not even good for him. He should have been overeating the good grass on the other side of the road. And I'm like, wow, there's a sermon illustration right there. And, and uh, the shepherd was sitting on a rock with his headphones on, not paying attention. <laughs> so there's another illustration there. And so I'm, I'm this shepherd and I feel this burden for our, our, our youth, certainly, and for, for everyone, for all of us that we're prone to wander like that. What makes us wander? Parents, I know you're being vigilant to protect your kid from, from the evils outside, but what are you doing about the evil on the inside? You can't pull it out of there. You can't deny that it's in there. Although I see that, and that grieves me more than anything. Really. Maybe I'm exaggerating. But it's on my top ten list. When one of our youth sins, and it's public, when the parent's first response is, not my fault. Oh, it breaks my heart. Your kid gets a sense that, okay, all this time it was about you and your reputation and not, there's no, you know, relationship here. It's about you and your, oh, you want a recipe for tempting your kids to sin more? Tell them their behavior is uh, the litmus test for how good of a parent I am. Or they say, this grieves me also, you must have the wrong kid. My kid would never do that. Are, you, are we reading the same Bible and the same Gospel? Are we not all sinners? We've just had more time to figure it out than our kids. We've got to help them know this is where the battle's at. Yes, it's out there, but the only reason the battle is out there to tempt us is because there's something inside that makes us fall for it. If there wasn't a problem in here, all of that wouldn't, wouldn't matter. So I, I found this list, you know, every once in a while, I, I, George Barna, the Barna group, will do a survey. I don't always agree with his um, diagnosis, but at least he's asking the questions and writing down the responses and collecting them for us. So, here are the six top reasons youth who grew up in the church say they are choosing to leave the church. You interested in this? Yeah. This is out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> Number one, churches seem overprotective. Churches seem overprotective. And um, the rest of the line was that they demonize everything outside the church. It's all bad, it's all evil. Stay away from it. For God made the earth and filled it with His goodness and 
There's so much that we can enjoy in Christ with things in the proper perspective. And if you don't teach your kids how to enjoy things, and if you don't teach your own heart how to enjoy things, good things God has given us, but not make them the main thing, then you leave your kids um, defenseless. They'll go out and chase after these things. They'll go hog wild. Or they'll never leave the house. But that's not the goal, right? The goal isn't to just keep them at home sequestered. They're supposed to eventually go out, maybe to the Middle East even, with the Great Commission. Number two, teens and young adults find their experience of Christianity to be uh, shallow. doesn't speak to me in my life. It's not relevant to where my life is at. It's all the same eight Bible stories over and over. I know John 3.16. Uh, Pastor Andy would tell us that it was John 3.16 every week at your church growing up. Uh, Which isn't bad if you use it as a springboard to the rest of the full counsel of God. But if it was just John 3.16 and an altar call every week, pretty soon everyone's like, well, well, we're all saved. Guess that's it. That's the whole Christian life there. Okay, I'll see you. Number three, the church seems antagonistic to science. He said they're tired of the creation-evolution debate. But when you dig a little deeper, you find out this is coming from kids who haven't been given deep, robust answers about creation issues. They think the church is full of people who aren't smart enough to understand evolution. Well, I don't know about all that evolution stuff. I just know God created the earth in six days, and that's what the Bible says. Well, that's actually the right answer. It's just the wrong tone of voice. Actually, when you study in depth the issue, it's the evolution position that comes up absurd. And yet, apparently, many churches aren't offering that kind of apologetic content to their kids. Number four, church experience related to issues of sexuality is often simplistic and judgmental. I did not cover number four at VBS, I promise you. And we're not going to cover it in depth here, but it's something that you need to talk to your kids about. Really, the gist here is we are saturated in a culture of, of sex. It is in our kids' face all the time. It's on the TV. It's in the movies. It's in the magazines. It's in the songs. And they're going to go out into the world and they're going to meet people who are talking about it, engaging in it, thinking about it, writing songs about it. And the temptation is so great and they start to say, the church is just, you know, just don't do it. That's all they they hear from the church, which is good advice. Wait till you're married. It's a beautiful gift from God. There's so much to be taught on this topic. It has to be done parent to to youth. We could probably have some specific teaching times, like a seminar here at the church and invite those with, with kids that age if you would like some help with this. But the kids are saying that they just... Um, it seems like all they hear at church is just keep yourself pure, just keep yourself pure, just keep yourself... And they're, they're tired of, of that message. And if they fail in that area or know someone who failed in that area, then they feel the church is judgmental and won't allow that person back to the church. All right, don't argue with me. This is just what the kids say, okay? Whether they're right or wrong, you know, you can't just say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, oftentimes they don't, but... <laughs> The whole point is we don't want them walking away from the church, so you need to know what's going through their minds. Number five, they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. Can you imagine going out to school or your baseball team or whatever, and you make great friends with some amazing people made in God's image? The common grace of God has made them fun people to be around. Sometimes they're even more fun to be around and nicer and more loving than the people you go to church with. It happens, right? 
sadly. And they go, you mean to tell me he's going to hell? But that guy in church who says he knows Jesus but doesn't act like it, he's fine. And so they want some kind of syncretistic uh, religious experience. Can't we take a little bit from everything? That's what they start to do. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but when you really nail them down, it's really they believe in a lot of things because they're trying to get like all their friends into heaven through the back door. And so some of them just get a crisis of faith and say, if that's what I have to believe, then I'm not going to believe it anymore. But the church has answers for that. We do. We have the answers. The Word of God has the answers. Number six, the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. This was the biggest one to me. What this meant was, here's a a young person. They've grown up in the church And they're secretly harboring some doubts, but they're afraid to tell anyone. I'm not supposed to to doubt. They wrestle with the problem of evil. Okay, I know God's all good and He's all powerful. Why is there so much suffering? They, They have a friend get cancer or something, and they say, well, how could God let that happen? I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and nothing happened. They're not allowed to to express any doubt. They know how important this is to their parents and they don't want to let them down. Now, I don't think we're a church like this. And to be honest, these 70% numbers they're telling us we have not seen here. Praise God. I really think that the depth of the teaching from the pulpit and the focus... (laughs) on godly parenting has really had a huge impact in this church. Not to say we're perfect, not to say people haven't strayed, but we're not seeing these 70% numbers, but we can do better. And I want to remind you again, this isn't just about keeping our youth from straying, it's keeping our own hearts from straying. This is what the church is all about. The Bible has revealed to us what our problem is, that We want to be our own gods. We want our own way. We want to indulge the flesh. Really, when I read this list of six things, what I'm hearing from these kids is they don't understand their own flesh and they're looking for a way out. They're looking for a loophole. They're looking for an excuse. And we should not, as a church, be providing that excuse. There's no place in the church for judgmentalism, for legalism, for heaping condemnation on those who fail, for acting like, acting like restraining the flesh is easy, and once you memorize John 3.16, you shouldn't mess up anymore. There should be constant conversations going on in this church about God's amazing grace. Not that we should sin so grace should abound all the more. Paul says, may it never be. Do your kids know that you struggle and how you're finding victory in Jesus? Do your kids know your testimony? Just a side note here because I'm hearing some backlash from kind of the movement we've seen in the last 20 years of let's protect our kids and kind of shelter them. The pendulum looks like it's wanting to swing the other way now. we got to get them out into the world. Otherwise, they're not going to know how to defend themselves against the world. I just want to say a word of caution to you. What this list is telling us is that our youth want to be accepted by the world. How well do you know your child? before you just throw them out there? Do you have one of those children who has to be accepted, has to be the center of attention, needs that attention? Don't throw them out there until you're sure that they understand 
their own sin nature and what their struggle would be and that you're going to walk with them. And if it gets too hard, then you're going to decide together that was too much exposure. Let's pull back. All right? That was too much exposure. Let's pull back. I've done this with my own children. I'll give you an example. Uh, My kids, boys like to make movies on the computer using movie-making software. And sometimes they need to pull something off the Internet to put in the movie. And... uh, but they're not allowed to go on without our permission. And they know that. And they've been struggling with going on without our permission. And we're like, can you handle it? And they said, no, not right now. We thought we could. You know, when they're little, it's the bag of candy out in the candy dish. Do you think you can walk by that and not take one? Sure. Yeah, right. (laughs) So why do you leave the candy dish out? It's okay to take the candy dish away, but you can't just take it away their whole lives. So how do you know when to put them into the world and when not to? It takes a lot of prayer, a lot of wisdom, and a lot of ongoing walking with them. Keep the dialogue open. What's going on? What are you struggling with? Okay, we need to maybe pull back a little in that area. Stop looking for the black and white answers. You're never going to get a pastor in this pulpit tell you where to put your kids in school. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Especially not before you voted, but I'm not going to do it after (laughs) either. It's just a powder keg, and it's the wrong question. The question is not, where do I put my kids in school? The question is, what will be the best path for helping my child to abide in Christ and have a lifelong relationship with the Savior. And at some point, they do need to be tested. But you'll have to decide as a family the best way that that's going to happen for your kids. So let's put any end to the the school wars. There's another one opening up this year. It's uh, Hope Academy. So there's all kinds of schools now. You know, a a little over 100 years ago, kids didn't have to go to school. Nobody was asking, where are we putting our kids in school? You taught them how to be Christians. That was the important thing. And then you gave them enough education that they could make their way in the world. And now we have things flip. Got to give them a good education so they can get a good job and so they can make money and so they can be happy. Start with their souls and work, work from there. Just to wrap up, I, I want to introduce you to this acronym and hope that it kind of catches on around here. Talking the gospel. You mean talking about the gospel. No, I'm tired of talking about the gospel. You know, is that being recorded? If talking about the gospel means... Did you memorize John 3.16? Yes. Do you believe it? Yes. Okay, we're good. That's not, that's not enough. Talking the gospel. T, teaching the gospel. The whole gospel. The whole counsel of God. For God so loved the world. Who? God. Who's God? What God? So loved. How did he love? What is love? What is biblical love? What does love look like? It can't be what they sing about on the pop radio station or the country western stations. That can't be love. What is love? Jesus said, greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I loved you. God laid down his life for us on the cross. He wants us to lay our lives down for one another. That's the kind of love God wants us to have. For God to love the world. The world, what's the world? Who's the world? Who's in the world? Who are we talking about? I'm the world. You're the world. God loved us. Well, of course he'd love me. Mommy, Daddy, you say you love me all the time. I must be lovable. No, you need to know something about yourself. (laughs) Come sit on my knee. I have something hard to tell you. We're not lovable. We're just not lovable. There's one person who's really okay with loving me other than God. It's me. I'm the only one who really finds myself that lovable. But God is making me into somebody that I hope my wife and my children and my friends are finding 
to, to be a little more lovable. But that's, that's all God. He gets all the glory for that. Apply the gospel. We had two little boys at VBS. One punched the other in the gut. It was like right during the worst time it could happen because we were all busy and we're like, we're trying to teach kids the gospel. We don't have time for this. Right? Isn't that you at home? And God said, no, this is the time for the gospel. Why did you punch the kid? I don't know. Were you mad at him? No. Were you? No. No. Why? I don't know. I just did it. Wow, there's sin nature, right? Right. I just thought I would take pleasure out of cold-cocking a kid in the gut for no reason. And then I asked the other kid, what do you think Jesus would want you to do to forgive him, right? And he's like, I suppose. <laughs> wow, look at that. More sin nature. We're always looking at the way people sin against us, but we often respond to sin against us with sin of our own. Do you think you could forgive him? I don't know. You know, he finally did. They made up and then they went back in and sat down next to each other and were like best friends. The rest of the day it was a beautiful thing. I think that was like the highlight of the whole VBS for me. Live the gospel. You have to demonstrate what it looks like. I'm convinced that if we will live this way as parents and as a church, that 70% number will shrink way way down because who would want to walk away from a place where people are completely loved and accepted even though we all know each other it's junk and we choose to love one another anyways because God loved us in Christ who would want to walk away from I'm convinced people who are walking away from the faith are in in uh, in places in churches um where this just isn't being taught and demonstrated and, and applied. And so really the kids haven't walked away from Jesus. They haven't walked away from the faith. They're just walking away from a bad experience. And they're looking for what the church is supposed to offer somewhere else. Which gives me hope that they'll come back when the church begins to be what God has called it to be. Because where else would you want to be than sitting at the feet of Jesus, being loved by God perfectly, being surrounded by people who know they're saved? And you can't do any of these three things if you don't know the gospel. So I would just pray that all of us would know the gospel more, more deeply. I spent the whole week in studying the gospel of, of love, and I couldn't get enough. It was like it was just an appetizer. I want more. I want to know more about this amazing God. I want to know more about His love. I want to know more about His grace. Can you, can, you, can you have a life like that? Can we do this together? Can we be this people together? Can we hunger for righteousness and hunger for God's grace and knowledge of Him? When we stand up at baby dedications and say, we're going to help do this, this is what we're talking about. It's not just, stop running in the hall. Okay, well, thank you for that. We need that, but it's, it's more than that. I need you to be this kind of people. I need to be this kind of person. Our kids need us to be these kind of people so they know what the target is. Let's uh, pray and go out and try to be these kinds of people by God's grace. Father God, what an amazing week it has been. We pray you were honored and glorified through our, our VBS that these kids who heard about this amazing one true God and his great love for us would be captivated, enthralled, fascinated, yearning for more, longing for more, that they would want to drink deeply from the well of your love, that we didn't leave them with a message that made them feel that they know it all and there's nothing left to know about God. Lord, that they won't leave this place thinking that their good works is what will get them into heaven. Lord, I pray you give all of us opportunities this week to apply the gospel in our relationships and that we wouldn't pass over them as annoyances 
but see them as God-ordained opportunities to grow in grace, to practice love, forgiveness, to both ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness. And that by the way we love one another, people will know that there truly is a God and that we're His disciples. Make Country Oaks into just that kind of place. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.